Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. Here you go. Here you go. Welcome, everybody. This is the second mailbag episode this is for all the people who have gone on apple you have been so loyal to nothing personal and i appreciate that we all do here especially coca he's got a job and what you did is you rated you reviewed five stars on apple and then you asked questions and once a month at the end of the month i promise to answer as many questions as i can and there have been some great ones i'm getting right to it the first question was uh very down and dirty and simple Why were the Marlins never competitive after 2003? Let me start by taking umbrage with the form of that question. The Marlins were absolutely competitive after 2003. As a matter of fact, in 2004 and 2005, we were in the wild card hunt. I remember very clearly at the end of the season in 2005, it was a game in Houston against Roger Clemens, that was started by Dontrell Willis after Roger Clemens' uh, mother had passed away, and we thought that we had a great opportunity to either pass Houston or pat our lead. We scored a bunch of runs off Clemens that year, that game, and we ended up losing the game, and I'm not sure we won another game, but we had competitive, competitive games in 05. Then we tore the team down and started with all rookies in 2006. That's the year Girardi won Manager of the Year, and he, we were competitive, but not for a playoff spot. But we were 79 and 83. It was not the end of the world as far as I'm concerned. Then we built that back up and, of course, fired Girardi. Thank God. And then ended up 2009. We won, I think, under Freddie Gonzalez, 80, 85, 87 games. And we were in the playoff race. So as I look back over the years, we did not finish. That's the last year we finished over 500. I just think that you have to examine when you say competitive, what you really mean is why did we never make the playoffs or why were we never able during our windows to even finish above 500 as often as we would have liked? One of the things that I will always talk about is that every team has a window of opportunity and the best executives in baseball are able to quantify when that window is open and when that window is closed. And what we were maybe guilty of since 2003 is trying to keep a window open too long. So we kept the 03 window open, even though we lost Pudge and traded away Derek Lee, but we still felt the window was open. We then signed Delgado in 05, added Al Leiter. We had a great team, so that window was open, and then we shut it. And then our window was closed in 06, 07, 08, but then Hanley and Ugla, these guys were good and getting better. And we thought that our window was opening again. And we tried to get a ballpark during that time. As you may recall, 2009 is when a ballpark was finally agreed to. And then we started building the team up slowly and then added free agents in 2012. The irony of all this, of course, is that none of it led 
to even a 500 record. Even when we had Stanton, Yelich, and Ozuna in the outfield, we just couldn't match it with pitching. Or when we'd have games when we'd pitch well, we wouldn't hit well. Or those three guys in the lineup had not yet hit their stride, let's say, the way Yelich has now become an MVP. Ozuna, obviously Stanton was an MVP for us in 2017, and we still couldn't be at 500 because we just didn't have the pitching. So I think it's a pretty complicated question. I absolutely respect why you'd ask that. Because for fans, when you're not in the playoffs, it feels like you're not competitive. Or when you're not finishing even at 500, it feels like you're not competitive. But I would argue that Marlins teams over the years, we've had more competitive games than we haven't. Uh, an inside story I'll tell you is one of the biggest fights I had with Giancarlo Stanton in our personal relationship. The biggest one was over the plane, the team plane. I don't know whether I've told that story. I'll have to ask Coca because I can't remember. But this was an argument we had over him saying that there, we were never competitive. I was wondering whether he's the one who sent this question because his view is that we were not competitive. And I would explain to him, he said, I want to play meaningful games. And I said, Giancarlo, you're playing meaningful games all the time. He said, well, I know we can't win even in April. I said, well, that's absolute BS. There's always an opportunity to have a season of surprise or to have an opportunity to do better than you thought you could do. We never put together teams where we thought we didn't have a chance. Obviously, after we did the big trade in 2012, we knew 2013 was going to be a struggle. After we traded off everyone in 2005 and started again in 2006, we knew we were going to be in trouble. But that doesn't mean that those players aren't trying. No one's trying to lose 100 games. Look at the Marlins this year. They've lost 100 games two years in a row or close to 100, and they're obviously projected to finish in last place in the NL East. Forget the fact that they've had a successful spring training so far. The reality is that they don't go into that clubhouse and say, listen, we're not going to be competitive. Let's not even try. It's not even worth it. That's just not the mentality. And so when you're asking that question next time, be more specific and say, hey, why didn't the Marlins finish above 500 since 2009? And then I'll give you a one-minute answer to say this. If you can't put together a team that can both hit, pitch, play defense, and you don't get overperformance by a large number of players on your roster, you're not going to finish above 500. I don't care what your payroll is. You need players to outperform their contracts. Even look at teams like the Dodgers. While they have hugely high payroll, obviously, they've got players making the minimum, meaning in, they're in their zero to three year stage of their career, and those are players helping them win. So, Marlins, not competitive. Come on, man. That's the answer. The second question was another interesting one that I wanted to dovetail. It, it, it went like this. After 18 seasons as an MLB team president, Championship aside, was I a successful team president? Why or why not? And what makes a successful team president? I wrote the question exactly as it was given to me, as far as I understand, and I laughed. And here's why I chose this. And it's going to be a bit of a longer segment because it's fascinating. After 80 seasons as MLB team president, championship aside. Well, what does that mean? How do you put a championship aside? If you're going to measure me solely based on rings, I have a World Series ring. We won the World Series. You can argue with me that I had nothing to do with bringing on Pudge, which I did. 
You can say that we inherited a good team from Dave Dombrowski. Well, guess what? We added Jeff Conine. We added Dontrell Willis. We added Miguel Cabrera. We added Juan Pierre. We added Mark Redman. I could go on. Juan Encarnacion. The list goes on for players that we added. So the old adage that that 2003 team was actually Dave Dombrowski's team is absolute crap. That was our team. So if I were in baseball for 40 years and had one title, I would tell you that I was successful. Now, the odds are if there's 30 teams in baseball, that for every 30 years you're in baseball, you should win one World Series. Well, why don't we look at the franchises who've been around for that long who have never won a World Series? Have there been other presidents more successful with more rings? Of course there are. The Red Sox, the Giants, I get it, right? They have more rings. The Yankees, more rings, no problem. But the Marlins, both 97 and 03, and I had nothing to do with 97, I wasn't there. But just the ring alone means that I am permanently enshrined in being a successful team president. And it's not that I'm trying to pad my ego, right? I don't need to do that during this show. I just want to tell you what are the measurements that I use. Let's look at the next measurement. Our owner bought a team for approximately $120 million and sold it for $1.2 billion between 1999 and 2017. I didn't own any of the team. There are There's debt involved. There, it's a complicated mathematical equation that includes taxes plus losses throughout the ownership of the team. But just from a net standpoint, I can assure you that the rate of return on the investment for the owner and owners of the team was extraordinarily positive. So from a financial standpoint, it's hard to argue I was not a successful team president because my job was to help increase the value of the asset. My job was to make sure that from the day the owner bought the team to the day he sold it, that it was going to be worth more. I've got another possible criteria, and I, and I understand maybe that we should measure this. When I started with the Marlins, we stayed, we played where the Dolphins play in Pro Player Stadium. But from 2002 to 2012, I spent 10 years trying to secure baseball in Florida. I'm not saying that it's successful and that we sell, that we have 30,000 fans every day. But you want to talk about the World Baseball Classic, the All-Star Game, all the different events, even the Monster Truck Show, the concerts, whatever you want to talk about. There is a ballpark in Miami called Marlins Park. Did I try to sell naming rights? Yes, I failed. But there is a ballpark built that was the first retractable roof gold facility. That is a environmental standard, gold certified, lead certified gold, first ever retractable roof, lead certified gold building. On top of that, it was the first ballpark. Do you know that we brought that in on time and on budget? And I'm telling you, we didn't change the budget from the minute we submitted it before construction began. Three years before the ballpark opened, we submitted a budget and we came in under that budget and on time. So is that a criteria for success that a ballpark got done and will stay there long after I'm gone and that my kids and grandkids will get to enjoy? I think that's a criteria, no doubt about it. Next, what about talking to former employees? What about if you had a conversation? Now, it's hard for this to come off as I'm not trying to toot my own horn. I'm trying to actually answer the question, was I a successful team president? I'm trying to go through all the different possibilities. How about talking to employees who worked for me? 
the thousands of employees who work for me and then get a percentage of those who were miserable versus a percentage who were loved working for me and the Marlins. And then compare that number to the employees who work there now. And then I would tell you that one of the great criteria for being a successful team president is how you work with your employees, how you empower your employees to do the job that they are paid to do, to let them succeed and flourish. I've got another one. How about the difference that our company made in the community? Don't listen to the new Marlins and the new management of the Marlins who tell you that not only was the old management irrelevant, but that the new management is now so much more involved in the community. That is the single most, well, I'm not going to say the single most offensive thing because they do so many offensive things that I can't even keep track anymore. But one of the most offensive things that new management does with the Marlins is they say that we did not do as much in the community as they are currently doing. Well, we had entire departments you talk to, let's say, uh, I, I don't want to mention the names of people who are still working there because then they'll get fired, but you know exactly who you are. But people who are not there any longer, like a PJ Loyello and other members of Jeff Conine, other people, Jack McKeon, Andre Dawson, Tony Perez, I could go on, and that's just sort of players or managers who you've heard of, but people who worked tirelessly to do things in the community. One of the most important parts about being a team president is what you give back. Now, I've told you on nothing personal that part of giving back to the community is that as a baseball team, that's our job. We have no choice but to give back. So I'm not taking credit for giving back to the community. Every team has to do that. There are many teams who stand up, including the current management of the Marlins, who stand up and say, hey, we are such good people. This is why we're doing it. Well, I'm going to tell you that it had nothing to do with me being a good person but it does have to do with me being a successful team president in that there are a responsibility. There is a responsibility that we have to give back to the community. And we do it because it is necessary. Secondarily, we do it because it's the right thing. And that sounds incredibly callous. It sounds unemotional. It makes you not want to love me. But I will tell you that if you look around at all companies, all Fortune 500 companies, all private companies who are really like all sports teams, a private company, meaning it's a private company, except they've got very, very public facing. All of those companies are doing things in the community. They all have budgets for the community. It's part of the cost of doing business. And for me, I always looked at it that way, except I took an emotional and a, a loving view of what we did in the community because I loved looking inside the eyes and I loved, <coughs> excuse me, I loved the opportunity to take a look at the difference we were making in people's lives because it mattered to me. So I think overall, my answer to the question is that I was successful. Were there things that I failed at? My God, I failed at so many things I can't even tell you. I wanted the TV deal that we signed in 2005 uh, that expires this year in 2020 was an absolutely horrid TV deal. I got completely out negotiated. We were so desperate to get some upfront money that I basically agreed to a rights deal that was way under market. I completely failed in drawing fans. We had terrible attendance every year. I tried everything from a marketing standpoint, from a sales standpoint, everything. And I was a complete failure at that. 
There's no question. I'm not blaming the market. I'm not blaming Miami. I'm not blaming the team performance. I will blame myself. That's part of being a successful team president, and I failed at that. Another thing I failed at is I didn't find a way to win more on the field. I believe we were competitive. You heard that in the first segment of this show. But one ring, I wanted two. One playoff appearance, I wanted four. I wanted in the new ballpark to sell out. Didn't do it. I wanted so many things to happen on the field that didn't happen, off the field that didn't happen. So there's a big part of my presidency that was a failure. And I absolutely acknowledge that. And I finish by saying what makes a successful team president, I think you have to understand what your job is. I think you have to have blinders so you and very thick skin, which means you've got to have the ability to move forward and not take criticism personally. You have to take constructive criticism and try to improve yourself. And you always have to know that you are a temporary baton holder in a race that will go on long after you're done. And you have to be willing as a team president to be successful, to plant seeds of trees whose shade you will never enjoy. You've got to be able to look long-term past when you're going to be a part of that franchise because that's part of the job that you have to do. So I think there's a lot of components. You need a healthy dose of ego, but you also need a healthy dose of subjugation. You need self-deprecation. You need the ability to communicate with people who make millions and millions of dollars a year and people who make $20,000 a year or people who don't have jobs at all. You have to be relatable. You have to be able to be a leader and understand that you're leading people into the great unknown and sports is the great unknown. So thank you for that question. God, I could go on for even longer, but I want to get to this third one because this was a, a good one. Uh, when I was president, that's three questions straight about the Marlins. When I was president, what was the worst promotional idea I ever had? Oh, this is a good story. This is really a good one. So the way our promotional calendar worked is I would get submitted at the, toward the end of a season, of the current season, I would get a list of possible promotions for the following season. We would always have the normal ones, the magnetic schedule, the pocket schedule back in the day. We'd have bobbleheads. We'd have shirts for kids, hats for kids, all of the, sort of the normal stuff, ball day, bat day, all the things that you'd think of. But I was always looking for something very Miami-centric. I always would tell all of my people in marketing the same thing, which is embrace the diversity of our hometown. Love the fact that Spanish is the majority language. Love the fact that we have a huge Latin American, not just fan base, but a huge Latin American presence that in Miami, if you don't embrace that, you're going to fail. And this is even when I was at Pro Player Stadium because I always considered us a Miami South Florida team. And obviously, whether you live in Broward, Palm Beach, Miami, wherever you live. By the way, just on a side note, uh, Coke is not here. I've got Mikey here. Uh, Mikey has been hugely helpful in this podcast and in this show, nothing personal. And I looked at him for signals. He just looked at me and yawned. So I'm trying to figure out, and he's not mic'd right now, but he's sitting right here. Is that yawn because of the promotional answer, the previous answers, or does it reflect your lack of sleep in the last two nights? Lack of sleep. Lack of sleep is his answer as he's got a frog in his throat. But it's always, when I give speeches, I always say the same thing. When I'm giving a speech to a big group of people, I say, listen, and I never use notes. I say, I am going to talk until six people fall asleep. 
It's got to be a total of six, no matter whether there's a thousand in the room, 10,000, 500, or 15. Six of you have to close your eyes, and then I'll know that it's not good. But if I can connect with just one person, then that will have made a successful speech. So I've lost Mikey, but I'm going to get back to you right now. I'm going to also assume from an ego standpoint, it was a lack of sleep. But from a reality standpoint, my guess is that he's just ready for lunch. Okay. So the promotion, I would say, listen, when we embrace Miami and we have to do something that is uniquely Miami, tell me what is your best idea? And someone came to me and said, we've got it. Let's do a promotion and let's give out Vuvuzelas to everyone in the stands. And I said what is absolutely normal to say. And to be a successful team president, you have to be willing to acknowledge when there are things you don't know. You have to. You can't pretend you know everything because you don't and no one does. So my first question was obviously very simple. What is a Vuvuzela? I had never heard of it. I had no idea what it was. And lo and behold, I was told exactly what it was. It is a horn that makes a noise that is second only to fingernails on a chalkboard, which makes me shiver at the thought of it. The sound of a Vuvuzela is so horrific that I don't know what else to say. And then the next two words changed my life in terms of my relationship with promotions. It was, yes. Wait a minute, that's one word. I just said yes. I may have said go for it. Let's do it. But those are all three words. So I don't know why I just said two words. It was either one or three. Go for it. Let's do it. Yes, we did it. We had a Vuvuzela promotion and let me tell you, it was the worst cluster ever. We were on every national show, sports shows, non-sports shows, because we didn't have a big crowd. The loudness of the whistling of the Vuvuzelas. Players came to me. I went to the clubhouse after the game. During the game, I started sitting near the players. I could see their reaction to what was happening. I immediately retreated to a bunker. I put my hands up in the nip in the tuck position, like when you're in the ring with Mike Tyson in his prime or even today, where you have to put your hands over your face because you're going to get pummeled. I knew it was happening. I knew that this was going to be a problem when our head of communications, PJ, came up to me and said, we are getting inquiries from around the country about the Vuvuzelas. You're going to have to talk to the media about it. So I had to talk to the media. I had to explain it. Then I had to go to the clubhouse and apologize to the players. The only other time I had to apologize to a player on, on a promotion, I had to tell Julian Tavares that I was sorry that his bobblehead looked nothing like him. Julian Tavares, we did a bobblehead of him. Julian Tavares is not exactly a good-looking guy. I love the guy, the nicest guy in the world. He's just not a great-looking guy. Beauty's in the eyes of the beholder. And I don't behold Julian Tavares as being a good-looking guy. So we did a bobblehead of him because why not? And we had traded for him before our first season in 2002. And the bobblehead looked nothing like him. And he wanted like 10 cases for himself to give to his family, to give to his friends. And he still took them. But he was so upset about the way it looked. And I said, Julian, this is way better looking than you are. Like, why can't you just say thank you? And we had a fun laugh about that. But that's so I apologize to him. But the Vuvuzela, I just said to the players, I was wrong. Like, I'll wear it. We're not going to allow them in the stadium because people were going to maybe bring them back after the day of that promotion. We're done with it. That's it. 
So the whole concept of promotions is something that absolutely has a um, an important part in baseball and in every sport, and here's why. There is a belief that for whatever reason, promotions actually add to your bottom line, that you will choose to come to a game because of a promotion, that you will look at the promotional calendar and say, this is a game I choose to go to. So I say to you, Whoever is out there who does that, how come you didn't do it in Miami? I can't say that we had one promotion where we had an appreciable increase in revenue. Now, did we get an extra 1,000 fans, 2,000 fans, which from a percentage basis is a lot. But if you're talking overall, those promotions were done as a way to give corporate sponsors part of their deal where they could have their name on the promotional item. So that would be part of the deal of the money they would give. Because as far as moving the needle goes, there are very, very few promotions that do, and I certainly couldn't come up with any. Okay. What is a player to be named later, and how does that work, and what are the reasons that you would do a player to be named later? So let me go back a few. I'll answer that question. Let me go back to the beginning of my career when players to be named later were because you were not allowed to trade a drafted player until that player had been in your organization for over a year. That rule has since changed, but in the beginning of my career, when we would do a trades for a player to be named later, one of the reasons is that one of the players to be traded was actually a player who was going to have to play for us for a full year or a half a year if we did the trade in the middle of the season or a month if we did the trade in August, whenever, whatever the case may be, because if a player is drafted in June, that player cannot be traded until June of the next year. MLB has changed that rule now. Because think about it, it makes no sense to actually have traded a player and have that player play for you. What if he gets hurt, etc.? Excuse me. The second thing, player to be named later. We would put it as a player to be named later or cash. Often the cash was a dollar. And the agreement with the opposing team is that they would choose cash and we would give the dollar. But we couldn't call it the trade was for cash, we would always say a player to be named later or cash. A player to be named later is literally just that. There's three ways. It's an actual player that is in your mind that you're going to trade, but you can't trade him. It is no player in mind, and it's never going to be a player in mind. So it's just there for eyewash, for optics, to make it look like that there is another player coming as part of a trade. Or There's a list of players that the other team gets to choose from that you give to the team. You can have one of the following five players. We're going to name him a player to be named later, which literally means you choose from this list of five guys and you choose at a point that we will agree to when we're doing a trade. It doesn't mean the player to be named laters are bad players. We've had some really good players who are player to be named laters, as a matter of fact. We've had some absolute duds. The majority of the time, players to be named later, the majority of the time, are NPs that are called, which are non-prospects. They're throw-ins. It's for optics. So GMs will often say to you when you're another GM or president to president, hey, if we're going to trade you this guy, we need, like let's say Cleveland with Lindor. They didn't trade him, but let's say they had. He's their shortstop, superstar. They would say, hey, we're going to need five 
bodies back. It has to be a five for one. That's how we would start a negotiation. This is going to be a five for one trade, but we know it's going to be three productive players and then two guys who we know can fog up a mirror. That is somehow times how we would describe certain players in a trade. Literally, are they alive? Are they breathing? That would be a list of player to be named later, and then the other team would just choose a player to be named, and we'd get to go to our owner and say, hey, we got five bodies for this one player. So there's a ton of reasons why we would choose to do a player to be named later, but currently, because you can trade drafted players anytime after the World Series, after which they're drafted, when you see out there a player to be named later, it's generally because they're choosing from a list or if you see player to be named later or cash, 99 out of 100 times, they go with cash. Thanks for that question. This next question is one that I really struggled with whether I wanted to answer on this pod, but it was a great question and it is a great question, but the whole purpose of nothing personal, if you listen, and I'm thankful that you do, the end is always, it's business, it's nothing personal. And so the question asked of me was, when was the hardest time for me to separate personal feelings in sports versus what is best for business? And the reason that's a struggling question is because that should be every time. It should be, there's never been a hard time. It's always been business for me. And that's the robot in me. That's me telling you that I practice what I preach and that when I tell you it's business and nothing personal, that I'm that way 100% of the time. And I learned to be that way because I built an armor around myself and and I made sure that no one could pierce it and I didn't allow myself to have any feelings. I didn't allow myself to have any relationships. And I made sure that I would always know the difference between emotionality and practicality. So I always wanted to be a pragmatist, right? I always wanted to do what I thought was right and what I thought would grow the business, what I thought would be better for the business. Unfortunately, I wasn't perfect in this regard. I remember several instances where I just had an emotional connection with a person or a player or an idea, and I let that emotional connection almost get in the way of a final disposition in terms of whatever decision I was going to make. So let's give an example. Let's talk about Dan Ugla, who to this day is a friend, lives in Atlanta, has a beautiful family, just a just a, a beautiful person, actually. And we got him as a Rule 5 pick, played second base for us starting in 2006, and it was a steal, right? I mean, he turned into an unbelievable power hitter, an all-star. Remember how famous his all-star game was in New York when he made all those errors? I'll never forget speaking to Dan after that game and how he was trying to tell people how it didn't impact him and how he was trying to tell people that he wasn't emotional about the fact that he made all those errors in the all-star game. And he and I had to talk about it and we were both emotional about it because on a stage like that, You don't want that to happen. Any athlete who just tells you that, you know, how about John Starks, two for 18 in game seven of the 1994 NBA Finals? Of course, he thinks about it every day. I think about every failure I've had in the boardroom, on the field, off the field. You just think about it, even when you tell people you don't. 
So Dan Uggla, we were negotiating. We wanted to sign him to a long-term contract, and I was letting the GM and I was letting the owner deal with it all. And But I was working on the side, and I was speaking to Ugla all the time. Uh, we were on the phone talking about offers going back and forth, and I was telling him I wasn't really um, torpedoing our effort, but I was communicating with the player. That's one of the things I did, much more so during my time with a team than most presidents do or most GMs, is I was willing. People think I'm a player hater. That's not true. I'm, I'm a definite. I side with management. However... I'm a communicator, so I would talk to players about what was going on, whether we were trading them, and I would try to explain what, what our positions were from a negotiating standpoint, and I told Ugla, hey, listen, this is our final offer, and you're going to be communicated this offer, and we have no more. The previous five offers, we, we knew we'd have to go up. We knew we'd give you the extra year, but this one, I'm telling you now, that's all I have. And we had a conversation. We had known each other for years at the time. And, and he said, David, I can do better. I can do better. And I said, but Dan, if you don't take this, you understand we're trading you. And I don't mean later. I mean like tomorrow. You're going to be traded to Atlanta. And when he did not accept the terms of what we were offering and he knew he was going to be traded to Atlanta, I had a feeling that he had negotiated with Atlanta and I just flat out asked him, I said, listen, if it's better for you financially to be traded to Atlanta, then say no to me now and you'll be on Atlanta. And Atlanta took him. They signed him to a four-year, $52 million contract, which ended up being a complete overpay. As you know, Danny, that said, he's enjoying the fruits of his labor. But I was going to want to match that Atlanta deal. That's how badly I wanted him to stay because of my personal views of Dan. And that's a problem. And it didn't happen, and I'm thankful because it would have been a bad move for the team. It happened with Mark Burley. I had a relationship with Mark Burley, and we had to trade him to Toronto in that massive trade in 2012. It impacted me. I was I had an attachment to him and his wife, Jamie, an attachment that since the day of that trade, they will. I've spoken to Jamie once since then when we ran into each other at a game, but Mark has never spoken to me again, not one time. And uh, that is eight years ago. And I don't know when that cold will thaw, but I hope it will thaw soon because I miss him and I miss the conversations we would have. I miss the time I would spend with Jamie watching her husband pitch and how proud she was and, and, and being around his kids. But we had to trade him. It was a business decision. Personally, I knew that this would impact me. It would impact our team. It's something that would impact the Marlins organization, even though from a baseball and financial standpoint, it was the right decision. It was impactful, and it was personal, and it was hard for me to separate my personal feelings in those instances, but I had to, because at the end of the day, no matter what anyone tells you, it has to be about business. It can't be personal. Thank you. That's a, that was an interesting question. Um, and I, I'm dovetailing this with another question that someone asked, which I enjoyed to read but didn't enjoy to think about. Was there a time when you were younger and not confident? And if so, what's changed? I don't even know where to start with that one except to say the bravado that you see on the air, that you hear through the microphone, the lack of emotion, the complete confidence, almost the people call me Napoleonic, but that's only because I'm short. I really have no interest in ruling the world. The reality is that I, I come off as very confident because today I am very confident. 
But when I first got into baseball, I was 31 years old and I was running the Montreal Expos and I didn't know anything about anything. I knew how to run a business. I knew how to handle spreadsheets and finances, but I didn't know baseball. And I would come in those first days and weeks in Montreal and it was all eyewash. I would have 7 a.m. meetings and bring in donuts and try to show people that I wasn't just the stepson of the owner, that I was more than capable of being the executive vice president of the Montreal Expos in charge of the entire business, in charge of everything, just reporting to the owner. I wanted to prove to people that the team was going to be in good hands. And over the years, obviously, the Expos didn't make it. But what I did turn out able to do, obviously, is run a business. And we were very successful during our years from 99 to 2017 when the team eventually got sold. But the confidence, that grows. So if you're listening to this, confidence, you don't wake up with confidence because if you do, it's actually fake. And sometimes people who look the most confident are actually the most insecure. Sometimes people who come off as the cockiest are actually the most troubled and made of actual tinfoil instead of rebar. And rebar, that's a word that I get from constructing Marlins Park. Rebar is in your house. It's in your building. It is what keeps a structure up. If you ever go by a house that's being built and you see a bunch of um, vertical, they look like wires, but it's a bunch of steel wires cobbled together. It's called rebar. That is how a house or a building or anything gets built. And, and confidence needs rebar. And confidence needs um, a base, a concrete base. And so I'm going to take that metaphor even further. In order to have confidence, you first have to have a vision of what it is you're trying to build. So people who just go into something and say, yeah, I'm completely cocky and confident that I, I can wake up tomorrow and be a brain surgeon. No, you get the confidence to be a brain surgeon once you've had the training and then once you've had the reps, once you've had the practice. When I was younger, uh, there were so many times, do you know what it's like to be chosen last for the playground pick every single time, right? Dreading that you were going to be the one who was standing there and then working harder than everyone, not sleeping and practicing free throw shooting, practicing holding a ball and any sort of athletic because I was always small, but I was always good at every sport. I was just great at none of them, and I looked like I wasn't good at any of them because I was so small. You know what it's like to get made fun of, right? They call it bullying today. When I was growing up, it wasn't called bullying. I just got made fun of all the time as though it's my fault, right, that I was short, that I didn't, you know, eat properly or that I didn't, whatever I did. I, I don't know. I look, I always looked young and always was and looked and am and still do look young and short. So you lose confidence that way because you can't, there's no rebar of people saying, you know what? You're good looking or you know what? You're the perfect size. So I ended up living my elementary school years and even my high school years firmly in the friend zone, like ducky and pretty and pink. Because to build my confidence, I wanted girls to be friends with me and I wanted people to accept me for what I was. And it's not as easy as you think. So all that you see now is confidence because I ran a team for 18 years. I was on Wall Street. I had a business in Europe. All the different things I've done in my life from doing Ironman to Survivor, anything you want to read about that I've done, I've done all for the sole purpose 
of building my confidence and of letting people know that sometimes the impossible can happen. That if you can actually believe that you can prepare for something, then you have the ability to do anything. And most people take the lazy way out, right? They don't want to prepare a lot because they either have a false sense of confidence, they have a false sense of accomplishment, or they're just generally lazy. But if you're willing to take the time to actually prepare, there's nothing you can't do that is within the scope of a normal person's ability. Everyone can be extraordinary. So your question, was there a time when I was younger, not confident? Yes. And anyone who tells you that that's not true, they're just lying to you, straight up. So as you know, I watch a movie every single day. Sometimes a TV show or a series or a documentary. Sometimes I think about, what I, I just have to watch something because A, I review something every on every episode of Nothing Personal. You will get a review of something. It's a movie that I've seen recently. It's a new movie. It's a movie just out on video. It's a new series. It's a new docu-series, something. But what I have carried with me for the last 10 years is my top 100 movie list. This list of movies, keep in mind, is my list of favorite movies. It's not Mikey's list. It's not Coca's list. It's not the best movies ever made. It's not Martin Scorsese's list. It is David Sampson's list of his top 100 movies. And I've released the first 40, number 61 through 100, in previous pods, as well as tweets, at David P. Sampson, thank you. By the way, you're listening to, as you know, the bonus pod where I mailbag, mailbag? I don't know what a mailbag is, but it is a mailbag, and this proves that we don't edit. It's a mailbag where you ask questions by rating and reviewing on Apple. That's how you got your questions answered. Rate it, write it, review it, ask a question, and then I'll answer it. First Saturday of every month, we will be releasing these bonus pods. And this week, I'm going to give you, this month, I should say, I'm going to give you number 60 through 41 of my top movies. Top 100, number 60, Wolf of Wall Street. If you have not seen Wolf of Wall Street, A, Leonardo DiCaprio's best performance bar none, period. Better than Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, better than his Oscar-winning performance in The Revenant. Number one, end of story. Number two, Margot Robbie. Margot Robbie, one more time, Margot Robbie and Jonah Hill, but Margot Robbie. Wolf of Wall Street 60, 59. Na, 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 58, two movies. Is that enough, Mikey? Will people get 59 from that? I think they should, right? They should. Okay, 58. I can't carry a tune, by the way. Chorus rejected, thrown off the chorus team in grade school, literally, because I started as a soprano, and then it was my bar mitzvah, and I ended up down here, thrown off the chorus team, beat that. 58, two movies came out similarly, The Prestige and The Illusionist. They're both great movies. The Illusionist is on my list as number 58, with Paul Giamatti, Edward Norton, and Jessica Biel, and Rufus Sewell, and... Rufus Sewell from Man in the High Castle. It is, uh, it's spectacular. Way better than The Prestige. And I love The Prestige. Check out The Illusionist, number 58. 57 was an Oscar winning turn for the first, for Marley Matlin. Marley Matlin, the first 
deaf actress to ever win Best Actress, along with William Hurt, who you may have heard of, who is an Oscar winner himself. This is a movie about teaching at a deaf school. Phenomenal. Children of a Lesser God. 56. <sighs> 56 is blow. Not that kind of blow. No, not that kind of blow either. It's the other kind of blow. Johnny Depp, way before Amber Heard, when Johnny Depp was an actor and a really good actor. Uh, this is a true story about George Young, not the psychologist, not the psychiatrist, right? This is the drug dealer. Check it out. 55, a shout out to my friend Tim Matheson, who's now in Virgin River, an accomplished director, actor, Tim Matheson, John Belushi, Kevin Bacon's first movie, Animal House. If you have not seen Animal House, I don't care how old you are. Go watch it. 54, people are shocked that this is in my top 54. I don't know why, because I'm white and Jewish? That means I can't tell you what a good movie is? Straight out of Compton. Unreal movie. Fascinating. I actually thought this is a true story. It's horrible to admit. I'm not going to say it. Okay, well, I thought Dr. Dre was only famous because he invented beats. Okay, moving on. 53. <laughs> People in the control room are dying. Mike, you all right? All right, good. That's true. That's true, though. Okay, 53. I actually just watched this this week. Again, it's The Descendants with George Clooney. Uh, you're going to cry. Shalene Woodley's in it. It's a story based in Hawaii about a man whose wife gets into an accident and is going to die. And it's the father with his two daughters. And it's saying goodbye to the wife and figuring out what to do. But in the meantime, he's one of the biggest landowners in Hawaii. It is beautifully set in Hawaii. Uh, it, the, Alexander Payne from Sideways won an Oscar for writing The Descendants. It's brilliant. So that's The Descendants. 52, some people have it higher. Russell Crowe, Gladiator. The best part of this movie is the last line. Watch the whole movie because Joaquin Phoenix is amazing. Russell Crowe, 80 pounds ago, amazing. But the last line is when Digimon Hutsu, I think I have the name wrong, when he buries a little gladiator and says he will see Russell Crowe later. Spoiler alert, he does die and says, but not today, not today. Although it could be not now, not now. I can't remember. 51, The Crying Game. Uh I don't know what to tell you about the crying game because I'm not going to spoil it. It is it is one of the great spoilers of all time, and I'm not going to do it. It's a movie that can change your life. You will learn, to, you will see an acting performance by Jay Davidson that is hard to comprehend. The crying game. They tell the story about the toad and the scorpion. Make sure you see it. Number fifty, uh, Silence of the Lambs. Silence of the Lambs with Hannibal Lecter, uh, played by Anthony Hopkins. Just get on it. And, uh, until Javier Bardem was no country for old men, that sort of de devil that he played, Hannibal Lecter was the scariest character of all time. 49, I'm sorry about Kevin Spacey, but it's American Beauty. You have to see it. That's actually my number 41 movies, The Usual Suspects, and 49 is American Beauty. Even though Kevin Spacey's in it, you have to see it. Bottom line, I don't approve of what Kevin Spacey did. I'm happy his career is over. That doesn't take away the fact that these movies are simply phenomenal, perfect movies. Number 48 is About Time. Number 47 is Bridges of Madison County. These are back-to-back -back tearjerkers for me. About Time is written by Richard Curtis. We're talking the Notting Hill guy. This is with Dominique Gleason, and this is with 
um, the girl from the notebook, Rachel McAdams. I simply love every part of it. It, it, it makes time travel way better, way better. And the music is perfect and you will cry and you will love it. Bridges of Madison County is the number one crier for me <clears throat> when Meryl Streep grabs the handle and grabs the handle and does not get out of the car. Bridges of Madison County is a better movie than it was a book. 46, we talked about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is from this year. 45, if you don't like Interstellar, you just don't like movies. People got confused by it, then watch it again. It's a three-hour movie. It has Matthew McConaughey, who I get can be annoying. I get it. But Interstellar is worth it. It's worth taking the time. 44, People vs. Larry Flint. Larry Flint is the publisher of Penthouse. Larry Flint took a case all the way to the Supreme Court on the definition of decency. We've talked about this on Nothing Personal. The whole purpose of free speech is that I'm allowed to say something that will make you so angry that you will stand up and yell even louder to protect against the things that I am saying. The People vs. Larry Flint, Woody Harrelson, Ed Norton, Courtney Love. Courtney Love, phenomenal. Sideways 43, did you know that in Sideways, when Paul Giamatti said he will not drink Merlot, that sales of Merlot actually plummeted? This is the other Alexander Payne movie that I was talking about, other than The Descendants. This is number 43, Sideways. Thomas Hayden Church is brilliant. Sandra Oh from Grey's Anatomy, phenomenal, and Killing Eve more recently. Uh, if you'd like wine, Sideways is a must-watch, period. If you don't drink wine, Sideways is a must-watch, period. Number 42 is Rain Man. Uh, Rain Man, of course, it's 10 minutes to Wapner. It's 10 minutes to Wapner. That's Rain Man. Dustin Hoffman played an autistic mathematician, an autistic whiz, the brother of Tom Cruise who played Tom Cruise, and Dustin Hoffman won an Oscar for this. And the movie directed by Barry Levinson, probably Barry Levinson's best movie, and that's saying a lot because he makes great movies. That is called Rain Man. You've seen it. And then 41, as I said, is the usual suspects. I'll tweet these out. That's my list of 60 to 41. Next month, I'm going to give you a 40 to 21. Hey, I appreciate the fact that you took the time to ask me questions as part of this mailbag. You went on Apple, you rated, you reviewed, and I promised you that I would answer. Thanks. Keep them coming. And we will do this again, same time, next month. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com slash balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.